Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, it is uh, my joy to uh, bring God's Word to us tonight. Uh, We are in the middle of a series through the book of Acts that we are calling The Way Forward. And as I've mentioned many weeks, the book of Acts is a very unique book in the counsel of God's Word uh, because it tells us something that really no other book tells us. And that is this, how did the movement that Jesus started of, of inaugurating God's kingdom, how did it go from a few people in Galilee, rural Galilee, how did it go from there to the center of the, of the world in that day, the empire of Rome? How did it arrive in Rome? And, and Acts tells us the story of it going from, from Jerusalem to Rome and what got the gospel there. Like, how did that happen? And so what we do is we, or what, what we've been doing, we, we've been learning about how that happened and what it means for us today. Like, what are the implications for our world today? And so tonight we're going to discover another element that was very crucial and key in the gospel going um, to the ends of the earth and, and specifically in Rome. And as you notice, I got my uh, amigo Rigo up here. And so, uh, so, so, uh, so Rigo and I are going to be team teaching tonight. So we've, we've had some fun preparing together as we hop into uh, God's Word. So in, introduce yourself, Rigo, and uh, share a little bit about yourself. Great. So my name's Rigo, and I like football and hamburguesas and gelato. For the last eight years, I've uh, had the privilege of making a fool out of myself around here in front of you guys. And uh, my wife and I, along with our kids, are transitioning to serve in Spain. And I'm excited to share tonight with you guys. This is going to be a fun night. So uh, we thought that tonight we would start by sharing something personal uh, with you. With you, um, We're going to share what our, what our favorite meal was growing up. And so Rigo's going to go first. He has a little bag of goodies. We'll see what was his favorite meal. All right. I'll share a little bit about my favorite meal. So what do you got, Rigo? All What's right. in that so, bag? So growing up, yeah, I have a, this little Trader Joe's bag here. But don't be fooled, friends. Uh, you can't find these ingredients at Trader Joe's, all right? So not to knock Trader Joe's, but there you go. My favorite meal growing up was fried plantains <laughs> with, uh, with uh, ground beef. And so you, you peel the plantains, you cut them nice and thin, throw, toss them in the fryer until they're nice, golden, crisp, like French fries, but they're fried plantains. We call them tajadas. That's how you say it in Honduras. And uh, then you make some meat, right? And uh, around my house, we use this type of seasoning called magi, and it comes in different types of uh, shapes and forms. My mom would throw a couple of dice or two of those in there, and uh, man, it'd be, it'd be awesome. Um, and then we'd, so we'd put the meat on top of the fried plantains, and we'd put some cabbage, and then also some curtido, If you know what curtido is, it's just basically our sauerkraut, okay, all you Germans out there. So basically pickled um, veggies, onions, and things mm, just on there. Mama would make a nice little (laughs) tomato sauce, toss it in there. Oh, gosh. And then what better way to wash it away than the nectar of Honduras? Tropical banana soda 
100% artificial sugar, baby. Zero <laughs> percent juice. They can't lie in America, so they can't get away with that here. That'll, uh, if you haven't tasted these waters, you haven't lived, friends. Okay. What about you, Pete? Where, where do I get uh, banana soda with no banana? Special secret. Okay, all right. Okay, so here's my, my, my favorite meal growing up on a Saturday... If it was on sale at the grocery store, my stepdad would go to the store and he would bring home these and it was a glorious Saturday in, in the Bulette household oh, and that yeah. was a steak. Ooh. So I, I tried to get a T-bone, but they did not have any T-bone. I, T-bone was what I liked growing up. So anyways, got to say, but, but then we had the, the, the Maggi of my household, okay? okay? Right. What the Maggi of my household was Larry Salt. Anybody grow up with Larry Salt? That's what I'm talking about. All right, I mean, all right. We Got a put few this fans. on all of our meats and all of our pizzas. I don't know if you ever tried on pizza, but we like that on pizza. So, Larry, so, and, and then, uh, and then I don't know if you ever grew up with this. You get grew up with Worcestershire sauce. What? Uh, you drink that, that right? or what? I don't know. Worcestershire. Worcestershire. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Liam Perrins. It comes in the bag, you know. So, anyways, that's, uh, we always kept the bag on it at my house. That's fancy. And so, uh, there we go. Did I, you, I said it right, and I, I don't know. Oh, okay. And then you got to have one of these on side, right? Big, big potato. And then just to, to ease your conscience, you need a little lettuce. So, <laughs> yeah. This is what I'd always eat first, so I didn't have to worry about it yeah, later. It's that spring okay. mix. And then, and then bread. Okay, I grew up in the Midwest, and so one time I was uh, having dinner with a guy from California, and, and we were having some bread, and I said, you have any butter? He said, sure, and I put butter on it. He's like, oh my goodness, do you like a little bread with your butter? I was like, what? No, everyone doesn't do that? Okay, anyways, so there, there, there's uh, my favorite meal growing up. That was, okay. that was like as close to heaven on earth as it got. Like that was, that was the I, Lord's Supper before right. the Lord's Supper. You know I can I mean? respect like, that. All right, okay, there. I think there there's go. a lot to say about our bags, too, our grocery bags. Yeah, yeah, NASCAR, yeah. NASCAR, Trader Joe's. Yeah, NASCAR. <laughs> I noticed that. Anyways, all right, okay. Why do we tell you that? Because in the, in the Mediterranean world of Jesus' day, meals were a huge deal. Um, meals were, like, if you had a meal with somebody, it was a very intimate thing. It, it spoke of a, a very... Uh, of the acceptance of that person that you're eating with. It was a declaration of your relationship when you would share a meal with them. And so throughout the ministry of Jesus, what we see is, is that Jesus had a lot of meals. In fact, uh, one scholar uh, said this. He said that it's like Jesus is always either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or getting up from a meal. Because meals are so central in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And so... As we uh, transition, so, so why did he do that? Because these meals were many enactments of the kingdom of God. There were, there were these enactments of what is God's kingdom like, and, and so we see the grace of his kingdom. We, we, we see the new creation that he's creating. And, and so anyways, um, Jesus had a lot of meals with people. So it's no surprise because Acts is the sequel to Luke that you see in Acts that meals have a very important part to play in the life of the early church because they continue to enact this picture of the kingdom. And, that, and I don't know if you've ever read the end of the Bible, but it all ends in a meal too, right? 
and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But let me just give you a picture of, of one of the meals. Um, in Acts 2.42, it says this, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes together and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And Rigo said glad stomachs and sincere hearts, but that's not in the original text. So that's just his version. But anyways, the point is, is these meals were very, very important. And so what we see is, is that on the day of Pentecost, the church goes from 120 people to over 3,000 people as the power of the Spirit anoints Peter. He gives his first message, 3,000 people saved and baptized. And then this is what it describes how those 3,000 people lived. Okay, if you remember the day of Pentecost, you'll remember this. That people were amazed that they heard their own tongue being declaring the praises of God on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter preaches the message. Okay, the reason why that's important is this. While all the believers at that point were Jewish, they came from many different cultural backgrounds. So from around the Mediterranean world and, and uh, throughout the Roman Empire, different areas of the Roman Empire, and even different languages, and now they, as this multicultural body, are together and they're sharing meals with glad and sincere hearts together. And it's this beautiful picture of the people of God sitting at a table together centered around Jesus. I have a, a quote for you um, from an author, Rich Vaidis, who um, talks about how the gospel must impact more than just our relationship with God. It's, I mean, that's where it all starts, but it also works out this way in our human relationships. And here's what he says. Next slide. Is it not there? Oh, did I leave it out? Oh, okay, I'll read it to you. It says this. The gospel must not only offer personal salvation in the future life to those who believe, but it must also transform all of our relationships of life here and now and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in the world. Does that make sense? And so we get the New Testament church starting off with this beautiful start. And then as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, we start to see that there are cultural tensions that start to form. And so we come to this pivotal moment with the early church. How are they going to respond and how are they going to react as these tensions start to form? And that's where we're at in uh, the book of Acts in chapter 6. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. All right. Acts chapter 6. Open up my sword here. All right, so in those days, I'm going to go ahead and read. In those days, when the number of, this, of the disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So as we mentioned earlier, yes, the church is growing very rapidly. And not surprisingly, we begin to notice some growth pains here because every church growth movement that we see comes with the beautiful challenge of ensuring that there is space for everyone at the table, right? 
One of my favorite uh, church historians, Justo Gonzalez, he writes this, that the possession of all things in common, commendable as it may be, did not abolish all tensions between various groups. And the various groups that he's mentioning here are the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. So it's important for us to maybe unpack a little bit about what we're talking about with these two groups of people. And so let's begin with the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews came from the Jewish diaspora, which is a a fancy word for the dispersion of Jewish people around the ancient world, right? So these were Jewish people who uh, lived around the Roman Empire in different territories, nations, and, and geographically were very far away from the center of Jewish culture. Some of them had probably lived outside of their ancestral homelands for generations, and because of that, they spoke Greek. And perhaps they might have spoken Greek even better than Aramaic. And I also wonder if maybe some of them didn't even speak Aramaic at all. And culturally, this is very important too, they might have had more Greek tendencies than Hebraic tendencies. In other words, the location where they lived formed them and their worldview and their tendencies and their their tastes, right? Well, let's go over to the Hebraic Jews and They're kind of the opposite. They are the OGs, to make it simple, right? Natives of Palestine and Jerusalem. They spoke Aramaic and probably didn't really give a lick about Greek. And they were deeply immersed in the pure Hebraic culture. Again, they were just the status quo, the OGs. And so, maybe I can give you an image to help you understand what this is like. Um, so I'll share a little bit more about my experience growing up. So I was actually born in Honduras, land of tropical, banana soda, 100% artificial. And um, I moved to the U.S. when I was three and a half. Spanish is actually my native language, my first language. And when I set foot on this country, soon after, I started the very important uh, task of... Uh, cultural immersion that I, that I, the, my very first experience of cultural immersion, and that was pre-K in America. Thank you, teachers, by the way. <laughs> and so um, I lived in an English-speaking world most of my day, and in the afternoons, I'd return home to my native Spanish-speaking world, and that was kind of my experience growing up. And even though, hey, I think by now I figured English out, you know, I think by now I, I think I speak it well enough. Um, and I still do speak Spanish a lot, especially with my family of origin. It hasn't come without its effects. Um, and to be vulnerable and honest with you, sometimes now when I hang out in Latin American circles, I have this ten- temptation to maybe feel insecure about, about the way I speak Spanish because my upbringing and, and studying in English and, and being immersed in this culture has kind of neutralized my Spanish accent. So a question I often get asked that is kind of complicated for me, and I get, the, and I get asked this question by Americans and Latin Americans and, and now even Spaniards when they hear me speaking in Spanish. They're like, where are you from, dude? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm from Honduras. Am I from New Orleans? Am I cool enough now to say that I'm from Charlottesville? I don't know. And to complicate things a little bit, I married an amazing, beautiful American woman, and I've spent so much time away from my family of origin that now even my culture has been a little bit Americanized. And so I don't fit the traditional bill of your Latin American stereotypical person, 
and I definitely don't fit the traditional bill of what an American is. Yeehaw, right? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> right? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I got pee with that one. <laughs> sometimes I wonder if maybe this was a little bit like what the, the Hellenistic Jews felt like. And I get a feeling that maybe some of you out there also can identify a little bit with that experience, right? That, you know, um, you're not fully this, you're not fully that. Um, a theologian, John Stott, points out that you can begin to see here how this was about language, right? The basic communication between people, but it was also about culture. Culture, the things that make and shape us, our way of thinking and seeing the world. You see, the church was Jewish in culture. It had not yet become the melting pot that God was calling it to be. And as Pete said, this was a pivotal moment. But for, for whatever reason, intentional or unintentional, the Hellenistic, the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked by the Hebraic Jews. And much more than a meal was at stake here. And we'll get to find out that in a little bit long, in a little bit. But before I move on, I just want to make a note of something here. We can appreciate the honesty of Luke in telling us that the church had some real stuff to work out, right? That the story of the church, of the real church, is a little messy. The story is that people in the body of Christ have conflicts. And you know what? We wanted to be nice and clean and cool and all that, but the church is made up of people like you and me, people of different tribes, language, tongues, uh, uh, tendencies, and, and, and preferences, and yet we are called to be one. But yet, even from the early church, we see a little bit of tension here. It got messy in the church, but the church, God's people, were not content in leaving it that way. So let's see what happens. Yeah, so, you know, we all don't want it to be messy, right? Like, we all want every relationship always to be perfect and just, you know, daisies and rainbows and hearts and all of that. But, but we see as, as far back as the early church that, that at times there were, there were tensions. And so let's see how they responded to these tensions. This is like a crucial moment in the life of this young church, right? How are they going to respond in this moment. So let's keep reading. We're going to read uh, from verse 2 to verse 6. It says this, so the 12 uh, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so in this moment, how did they respond. Well, there, there's four things that we see of how they responded that I, I, I want to highlight as we go through this. Uh, the first three I put up there all together because we can knock through these pretty fast. The fourth one will take a little bit longer. It says, 
First, they listened to the experience of the Hellenistic widow, uh, Jewish widows. They, they, they sit, sat and listened. Hey, here's what's happening to us. And we just we feel like it's important that you know that. And so the apostles heard this. And their response then was that they had a discussion about how to improve and to grow. Okay, Now, they knew this right out of the gate, that they could not be the only answer to the issue that was going on. They're like, we have to preach the word and we have to pray. And so... This is a huge task, and we can't have it all on us. And so then, here's what they said. We want you, and so we'll just say, you guys are are the church. We gathered. We want you to pick seven people who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith and wisdom, okay? And here's what it says. Everyone leaned in to make sure that there was unity. It said... In verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group because they all said, yes, we want to have a solution. We are are not happy with the report that we're hearing, and we all want to lean in and make this a better situation for everyone. And I, I think this is really important. They didn't say, well, that's not my problem. I'm not a Hellenistic Jew, and and so that, that doesn't really impact me. Maybe somebody else can take care of it. No, no, no. They said, we all are going to join together and figure out how to make this better for everyone. Are you guys following me? Okay. And then they appointed seven who met the qualifications. And here's the the interesting thing that many, many commentators pointed out. Here's what they pointed out. That all seven of them had Greek names. All seven of them had Greek names. Why was that important? What were they doing? It was like this picture that the Hebraic Jews, when they heard the issue and, and were thinking about, we, we, we need to, to do better with this, that they were like, we're going to go the extra mile to, to bring this tension into reconciliation. And so, so they were like, you know, it, one, one scholar I listened to, pastor scholar, his name was George Wood. He, he said, this is like, when they heard this, they're like, may it never be. And so they, they're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick seven people who have Greek names from Greek backgrounds, most likely to be the people who are in charge of making sure that this doesn't happen anymore. So you know that we are with you and that our hearts are for you. May it never be. And so they empowered these um, people to the, these uh, seven men with, with these Greek names. And it's, just, and it's this picture of a really beautiful moment, Rigo, where the gospel is being worked out in the messiness and the tensions that they were facing, that the gospel is being worked out in this moment of tension, moved from a moment of tension to a moment of affirmation, of love, of honor, of unity. And they moved forward. And it says that they were all pleased with the proposal. Well, what was the result of this? Okay, if that was the the reconciliation at the table, what were the fruits of this? So glad you asked. Verse 7, keep reading. It says this, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So what was the result of this 
of this reconciliation, of of this cultural tension where they loved and honored and and moved forward together. Here was the results. It was a burst of growth in this young church. What could have submarined this young church, turned them inner and, and, and caused division and caused them to lose sight of the mission, actually united them in love and in unity and they moved forward and the gospel went forward. And so Luke tells you the result. He's like, the word of God spread. Many disciples, it grew rapidly. And then this was all, no, 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 go back. I'm sorry. Um, other, this, this one always struck me. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I, I'm like, why does Luke include that? A large number of priests became followers of Jesus. I don't know. This is conjecture, so don't hold me to this, okay? But let me give you my conjecture. I think it may have been this, that they were so struck by the love that they saw between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, because these priests would have been, because this tension wasn't unique to the church. This tension was in the Jewish culture, and when they saw them come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and reconcile and move forward, it was so compelling because they had probably dealt with that for years. And now they see, and, it, and, it, and so they, they saw the love and Jesus was glorified. So they saw the glory of Jesus by the way this was fleshed out in the gospel. They found it compelling and they became obedient to the faith themselves. As I was preparing this, I was reminded of Psalm 133, one of my favorite psalms. It's a short little psalm. And it starts with this, how good and pleasant it is when the people of God dwell together in unity. And it ends with this, for there the Lord wants to be, or will bestow his blessings. In other words, when God sees his people together in unity, he's like, I want to bless that. And I feel like this passage is an outflowing of the truth of Psalm 133. And so, what a beautiful picture it is. Now we can go to the, to the quote. A Cambridge historian, Henry Chadwick, said this as he looked over the early church. He said, the expansion of the church seemed an, extra, an extraordinary chain of improbabilities. Nothing could have been less likely to succeed by any ordinary standard of expectation. And then listen to this. Charity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. The pagan comment, see how the Christians love one another, was not irony. In other words, this unity... The love of Christ led to unity. That unity led to generosity for all. That generosity for all put the glory of Jesus on display. The glory of Jesus on display brought more people into the kingdom. So what is the way forward? The way forward is through love and unity in Christ. That is the way forward. So, Rigo, uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what ingredients need to be on the table right. for us to have um, this in our community. Yeah, so as you can see, the table was set, 
and the people of God were served. And it's important that we talk about the, what makes, what are the key ingredients that make this meal so successful, that make this table so successful. If we are to be this kind of Acts community that God is calling us to be, what are some key ingredients that cannot be missing from this table? And so as we read Acts 6, uh, we just want to point out three things that we think are key to this type of living. And number one, it's simple. It's being invitational, okay? No one can come to the table without an invitation. And, you know, when we invite others to the table, we begin to think about the things that we need to do to make this table or this space hospitable, right? You might think about cleaning your house. Um, what are the dietary restrictions of my guests? Uh, you might even think uh, and make sure that there's enough to eat for people. And as a community, one of the most hospitable things that we can do is think this. Who isn't around the table yet? And how do we make it hospitable enough for them to come? Who isn't around the table yet? And how do we make this hospitable enough for them to come? And in considering this may lead us to change some things in our menu, right? Um, but we do it for the people that Christ died for, for the sake of the table that he first set for us. And there's just something so honoring and beautiful about the act of inviting someone into your space, into your home, into your heart, right? Through a meal, to dine at home. Walls and barriers are broken when we invite the least of these to dine with us as Jesus modeled for us, right? The next thing I want to encourage you with, the next ingredient is sharing and listening. As Jesus left his world to enter into ours and really lean into uh, who we are, he calls us also to abandon ourselves for a few moments, and probably for our lives, actually, and enter another's world. Perhaps we should think about asking this question in a, more, in a very sincere and earnest way. Tell me, friend, how are you doing? Right? And truly mean it. Truly lean into the stories that we hear you know, a few months ago, Abigail and I hosted some friends at our home, and as we were eating and sharing, we heard some difficult parts of their stories about, you know, their struggles with infertility and how hard that was. And even though my wife and I have not had that struggle, it didn't excuse us from entering into their pain and suffering and leaning into what was going on. And on the other hand, a few weeks ago, I had the honor of sitting around across the table from the same friends and hearing their joy in the conception of their new child, right? The table presents us with such a beautiful opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And we practice humble, curious, and active listening with our brothers and sisters along the way. And you know what, guys? From personal experience, I can tell you like how much of a blessing it is to be able to just you know, say the things that are on my chest and not expect somebody to tell me all the answers or find out all the solutions, just for somebody to hear what's on my heart and just at least say, hey, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you. I don't know all the answers. I don't know how all this is going to end, but I'm here for you. Something so beautiful that reminds me that God is also with me, and he sends his people to share and listen with me. And finally, I want to say the other ingredient is responding to what we hear at the table. How many of you have gone to a lunch or dinner and made plans to go on a second date? I mean, a second, uh, <laughs> a second dinner or lunch. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about, you know, right? 
but you just enjoy it so much, right? And, and you talk about things and, and you talk maybe about a movie you haven't seen. What, you haven't seen that movie? Oh, we have to go watch it next time. You like this type of food? We should go to this restaurant together. Or you haven't met this person? I need to introduce you to my friend. I think you'll get along, right? There is just some, a, a beauty that's built as we share across a table and as we enjoy the joy of, of each other. And yet it also presents us with an opportunity to practice real community as we saw the disciples doing in Acts 6, right? That we ensure that, our bro- that we are there for our brothers and sisters, that we pursue them and their journeys with prayer, right? Whatever they're going through, we pray for them and, and we're there with them, you know? And we prayerfully also consider if there is an action that God is leading us to do. And I firmly believe that sometimes, yes, God is calling us to get up from the table and do something for our brethren, for our friends, for our family, whoever we're there, God stirs us in that moment. And I believe it's because of this, because when we come to God's table, right, um, when we enter and experience his presence and his love for us, his extravagant love, it's impossible to leave unmoved without a response. That's what God's table leads us to. And look at what we see the church living out in Acts 6, right? We see these ingredients at the table and look at how the church grew. And again, to say what Pete said, the way forward is love and unity. I had a beautiful revelation of what this can look like over spring break. Shout out to my Granada spring break team, Grupo Tres, where you at? Um, We had a beautiful afternoon one day and when we went to have lunch together, we're, you know, it's a beautiful day. We're all enjoying each other's company, learning, serving together. And, you know, we put like five tables together because there's like 15 of us and, you know, um, things are compact over there. And as we're sitting and enjoying each other's company, we're smiling around the table. We have placed our order and are eagerly, hungrily <laughs> waiting our food. I just had this beautiful moment internally where, I noticed something beautiful, that around me was this eclectic group of people that through one way or another represented 11 nations. We had Honduras, we had Colombia, Kenya, Mexico, Scotland, South Korea, Spain, USA, India, Philippines, Ethiopia, and of course, US, right, I hadn't said that. It was a group of different cultures. It was a group of different personalities and life experiences. Yet the one thing that united us was far, far greater than the many things that differentiated us. And you know, it was said of us, uh, many of our Spanish friends noticed something different about us. And they said, there's something different about you guys. There's something different about this place. And you know, I think that it's because they, they notice that sense of community, that sense of unity in our lives, that, that even though we are different, we are united, and the testimony of the love that we professed was experienced among people who had no context for the gospel. Guys, what a beautiful testimony, testimony of the work that we can accomplish when we come together at the table and eat together. God is glorified, his mission is expanded, and as we sang tonight, 
Every tribe will see your glory. Every nation will bow before you. All our treasure turned to ashes in the light of you. There is no one like our God. That's the God we serve. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close tonight, we thought we would close a little differently than we normally do. And as you came in, you received communion elements, did you not? And so we thought tonight we would close with taking the family meal together. Um, I'm going to call the worship team up. See, before the early church would have communion, do you know the early church didn't just have a wafer and a cup of juice or wine, right? The early church... Uh, had a love feast. They called it the agape feast. It was the family meal. And so they would come together and they'd have a meal as the people of God. And then they would conclude that meal by commemorating the body and blood of Christ through bread and wine. So has everybody gotten elements? I'm going to ask that you stand. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talked about this as he exhorted them of how to be this kind of community. He said, for as I I received from the Lord, I've also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As Rigo and I were preparing this message together, we were talking about the things that communion remind us, uh, reminds us of. I have a few things. Rigo has a few things. And so I thought we could contemplate those things before we take this communion together. It reminds us that we are sinful that we have failures to love and we need grace doesn't it it reminds us that we're all saved the same way by the grace of God through Christ it reminds us of the love that God has for us us that we're all in the same family, brothers and sisters with the same Savior, Christ. Communion reminds us that in Christ, there's a place of healing. Communion reminds us that in Christ, there's a new source for life with a new way to live and a new way to love. And as we take communion, we're reminded of all of these realities. Rio, why don't you share some of the things that it reminds you of? Yeah, you know, communion really reminds me that I was once an outsider and Jesus welcomed me in. It reminds me that despite my brokenness, my sinfulness, my otherness, he has created his place for me at the table. And in my missionary context, it reminds me that there are yet those who have not come to this table. I want to labor to make that happen. 
So will you hold the wafer and the cup before the Lord? Lord, we are thankful of all these powerful realities that we're reminded of as we take communion. We do this in remembrance of you, that you are the source of it all. Your body given for us. Lord, thank you that you then make us your body, the body of Christ as a family. Let's partake of the wafer. reminded what can wash away our sins nothing but the blood of Jesus for in Christ alone we find our hope we're reminded that we've been lavished in grace through the shed blood of Christ reconciled with God brought into his family and given brothers and sisters in Christ and so as your family we partake Oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink the cup. Let's worship together as we close out tonight as God's family. Lord, we do pray. We prayed individually and we pray that collectively. Lord, make us more like Jesus. That we would model Jesus. And as we do it, that we would see the same thing happen. That people would find it compelling. But Lord, we need you. We need more of you. To that end, oh God. In Jesus' name. Lord, help us to walk forward in love and in unity. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is uh, not Rigo's last MNL, but it is probably the last time he'll speak. And he has been such a gift to our ministry over these last eight years. He and Abigail, we love you, man. I I can say the same thing about Pete for making a place at the table for me. I can say a lot about that. I love this guy. <laughs> so we're going to do the benediction in two languages tonight. Yeah. Okay, so he's going to do it in Spanish, and then I'll give it in English. All right, will you guys receive the benediction? Que el Señor te bendiga y te guarde. Que el Señor te mire con agrado y te extienda su mano. Que el Señor te muestre su favor y te conceda la paz. En el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. And may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give his, or turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.